Hello, my wonderful patrons. This is Sam Biagetti of Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So I'm here ready to record after having schlepped through the snow both ways uphill. Get my outline just to show how much I care about you and want to deliver good content. So I've been promising for some time a lecture about astrology, which is my subject for Myth of the Month number 14. And astrology, just to give a basic broad definition, is a set of teachings and practices aimed at forecasting events based upon the movements of the heavenly bodies. And so there's a basic underlying notion that devotees of astrology accept that the heavenly bodies are some sort of messengers that can give meaning or that can foretell events in the world, or even that they are controlling forces that actually actively affect events in the human realm on earth. So this basic idea can seem irrational or mystical at least, but actually to people in the ancient and medieval worlds, it made a lot of sense when you consider, for one thing, that the moon does seem to have some correspondence to events in the world. The positions and phases of the moon seem to govern the tides, also women's menstrual cycles. And so it seemed reasonable to suppose that other heavenly bodies, in addition to the moon, had just as much or even greater influence. It might seem odd to choose this occult art or occult science, you might call it, as a myth of the month, but I have been wanting to address it because, among other reasons, astrology has a remarkable framing power that really underlies the basic template for how we understand history, including here in the West. Why is it that we break time into weeks of seven days? Well, that's because of astrology. The seven days of the week are traditionally associated with the seven so-called planets, which astrologically means the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And even in English today, you can see how we still assign those astrological names to the days. Sunday for the Sun, Monday for the Moon. Tuesday is associated with Mars. Wednesday with Mercury. Thursday with Jupiter. Friday with Venus. And Saturday, of course, for Saturn. Why do we break the year into 12 months? 12 is a, a composite number, a number of completion, often with spiritual overtones like the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples and the 12 signs of the zodiac. And we link that to cycles of the moon, and hence we have months. We observe all kinds of holidays associated with the solstices and equinoxes of the solar calendar, Easter, Christmas, Passover, and so on. And even more crucially for the discipline of history, the idea that time can be broken into ages or epochs 
and that those ages usually tend to be about a thousand years in length or a millennium. That is linked to the 960-year cycle by which the planets Jupiter and Saturn come to conjunctions at regular intervals. And a very deep-rooted idea of astrology is that these cyclical conjunctions or joinings of the positions of planets actually change and regulate the course of history, particularly political history, the rise and fall of regimes, of rulers, of empires. And it's for this reason that we have the concept of the Middle Ages, which is something I've discussed a lot. My first lecture in this whole podcast was on the myth of the Middle Ages, Well, that myth came about largely because of astrology, and the Renaissance humanists in Florence in the 15th century were caught up in the midst of an astrological fervor, and when they set about dividing history into ages, they set out the Middle Ages as a distinct period, which was, from their point of view, about 960 years long. And moreover, the notion that these eras of history are punctuated by dramatic shifts called revolutions. The word revolution is originally astrological. It means the completion of a cycle, and we still use it in modern astronomy to refer to the completion of one orbit around a sun or around a planet. Well, this also was used to denote these supposed rupture events by which one era ended and another began and presumably restarted, restored the order that had existed before. And in this way, the Renaissance and the Reformation were understood as revolutions, return to an ancient primitive order out of the sort of darkness of the Middle Ages. And we continue to apply this same basic idea to all kinds of developments like the industrial revolution or the agricultural revolution. This kind of language in this way of demarcating time and history has really persisted right through into modern scholarly history. So all of our telling of history, even today, is framed by astrology, which is a science of time, really. It's a science of breaking time into units and fitting events into some sort of repeating narrative that unfolds through time. But naturally, astrology also has, of course, woven into it the idea that our fates, the fates of societies, of governments, and also of individuals are bound up with these great events that are beyond our control. Hi. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? Okay. I was uh, just recording. Are you recording on astrology? Yeah, that's right. Okay, I'll let you go. Cool. Astrology, though, beyond its aim to interpret and order the history of the world and of great events, it also is applied to individual lives. And there is this notion woven into it that our individual fates are also bound up with great events and great forces beyond our control. And the benefit of astrology in that sense is more in simply understanding what's happening and 
responding to it, even if it doesn't change your fate. So astrology has always been, on one level, very political and used very much to regulate and present and legitimize power, the power of rulers and governments. But it also is biographical, it's personal, and for many centuries, as I'll explain, it was very much a courtly art, an art of high society around the great and powerful people. But over the years and in recent times, it has also become more personal and it's been popularized as something that ordinary people can access and use for themselves in their own lives. So to try to make order out of the very, very complicated history of astrology through the millennia, I'm going to try to just break things down. I'm not going to get deeply into the details and the mechanics of astrology, which are very complex and which in which I'm not an expert, but I'm going to try to break things down in three different ways. One into four eras of astrology, sort of four basic ages, you know, I'm using kind of astrological terminology here, but four basic ages of the development and spread of astrology, which are the ancient, which began principally in Mesopotamia and then spread to other civilizations, Hellenistic, the blending and combining of different beliefs and practices, in the Hellenistic Age, following after Alexander the Great, the Islamic Age, which in some ways we're sort of still in, but a sort of golden age of astrology centered mainly in the Islamic Empire in the Middle East, and which then spread to the West from the 1100s through the 1600s. And then the modern age, this sort of, you could say, kind of abeyance or change or reformation in astrology from the 1700s to today. So I'll discuss what happened and how astrology evolved through those four ages, ancient, Hellenistic, Islamic, and modern. I'll talk about also the the three modes or applications of astrology. So there are, there are three different ways basically speaking, that one can use the supposed insights and tools of astrology. The first is mundane, and that probably is where astrology began, with uh, predicting or describing great events in the world. So mundane means not just ordinary, it means of the world. So it's just an application of this basic idea that the heavens tell you something or can even predict what is going on. Secondly, natal. So that's the application of astrology to individual lives by looking at their birth chart, at the exact positions of the different heavenly bodies at the moment when they were born in a specific time and place, and then interpreting that person's character and also their fate and their life course based on their sort of place in the cosmos at their moment of birth. And thirdly, horary, which means dealing with questions. So that is when someone is trying to take an action, make a decision, and they consult astrological charts and knowledge, or they consult an expert astrologer in order to decide a course of action. Should I marry this person? Should I buy or sell this property? 
And one important subset, I think, of horary astrology, which sometimes is described as its own field unto itself, is elections. And that means timing. If you know that you have to take an action like launch a ship, it's a very common one. What would be the exact most auspicious moment when the forces of the heavens are most favorable to the success of the venture? So you may notice when we talk about these different applications of astrology, mundane, natal, and horary, there are different implications to each one and different, you could say, metaphysical assumptions or frameworks to them that sometimes can be intention. And there are two basic ways of understanding astrology and how it works that sometimes are intention, but can also kind of be glossed over. And the first one is looking at the heavenly bodies as signs or messengers that can be interpreted. And even uh, Plotinus, who's the great founder of the Neoplatonic school of thought, many Neoplatonists did not look at the, the heavens the same way Plotinus did, but Plotinus is an example of a thinker who viewed astrology in this light, and he's quoted as saying, quote, We may think of the stars as letters perpetually being inscribed on the heavens. Those who know how to read this sort of writing can read the future from their patterns, discovering what is signified. So a more modern commentator has said this is like looking at the sky as a kind of cosmic bulletin board. And you may believe that there is some sort of greater force like a single god or multiple gods who are affecting events and the stars and the planets are how they communicate those intentions to human beings. The other way of understanding astrology is actually very different if you look at it metaphysically, and that's to think of the stars and heavenly bodies as actual forces exerting influences on the earth. So in this case, you might, for instance, be polytheistic, and you might see the different planets as representing gods. And in fact, you know, that's not only a Greco-Roman thing, that goes back also to ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia to identify the planet Venus with a love goddess and the planet Mars with a war god, and to actually believe that one way or another, the stars and planets are, you could say, pushing and pulling people and events on Earth. So those are two very different things, and depending on your other beliefs and your other convictions, you might feel forced to view astrology one way or the other, or maybe to reject astrology completely because of its possible metaphysical implications. But there are tensions here. And if we look back at those different modes and applications of astrology, I talked about mundane astrology and also natal astrology can be taken to imply a kind of fatalism, that events are predestined and the stars have somehow determined events. And that's how a lot of people often say things like, this person is ill-starred. You know, we still use some phrases like that, but they used to be much more common and people took them very seriously. The idea that your destiny, your fate is, is fixed by cosmic forces beyond your control. It's already sealed. Regardless of whether the stars are affecting them or merely predicting them, but 
you could say, in a sense, the more effective mundane or natal astrology are, the more fixed your destiny must be. If you are able to draw more and more out of correct interpretation of the stars to determine precisely what's going to happen, the more that implies that events are fixed and faded and beyond our control. Whereas if we look, on the other hand, at horary astrology, where you do things like ask, hey, should I buy this business or not? Is this a good idea? And someone interprets uh, the stars. Well, that has a very different implication. It may assume that the stars have some sort of effect, right? They must be making certain actions or certain moments in time more or less auspicious, but that doesn't control events. And in this case, the more effective the astrologer is, the more you as the client are able to control your actions and control your outcomes and get the outcomes that you want. So in fact, it implies much more agency, much more hope of determining your fate. So in this sense, you could say, does there's this looming question, does astrology reveal your unchangeable, unshifting destiny, or does astrology change your destiny and empower you to control your own life. And in this sense, it's important to see the metaphysics, the metaphysical ideas underlying astrology are very often confused and unresolved. And different people have taken different paths and routes to try to make sense of these tensions. And a really great example of that that's often mentioned is Thomas Aquinas, who was the great Roman Catholic scholastic philosopher of the High Middle Ages and who tried to reconcile Christian teachings with Aristotle. Well, Aquinas looked at astrology and argued that there probably was some validity to it as you know, many great philosophers have thought that there is some truth to astrology, others have rejected it, Aquinas said, well, probably there is some, but we shouldn't overstate it. And he argued that there's a distinction between the body and the soul, a classic you know, Christian distinction. And the stars, he argued, do have power over the body, but not the soul. And hence, by and large, people's actions may in fact be guided or pushed and pulled, and great events may be guided by the stars. But the more pious, the more prayerful you are, the more aware you are of God's will, the more you can overcome the body and subordinate uh, these, these forces pushing and pulling the body to one's mind or soul. So hence, he argued, in this way, both mundane astrology, which foretells great events like political overthrows or wars, may be valid because most people, all things being equal, are affected by the stars. But also, horary astrology might have some validity too, because if a person is pious or prayerful enough, he can figure out how to overcome or resist the power of the stars. And hence, he also believed astrology could be reconciled with Christianity and Christian piety. 
Now, you might notice hearing this argument that Aquinas, the problem that Aquinas is grappling with of how much do you actually control your own destiny and does the prediction, the prognostication of astrology, in fact, show that you do not control your own actions and are simply manipulated by greater forces, this is more or less the same problem as the so-called problem of free will that faces modern-day sciences and scientists. You know, as physics and biology and chemistry seem to show more and more how our actions can be described and forecast, doesn't this mean then that we don't actually have control. We don't, we don't have the capacity, the agency that we think we do to decide our own actions and hence control our own destiny. And one might ask in this same sense as astrologers grappled with these questions, in the same sense does modern science, does it actually have the ability to change or improve our lives as we like to think? Or does it only reveal to us how much our fate is in fact fixed and unchangeable. So in all of these ways, really, astrology is still very relevant, whether you subscribe to or make use of its teachings and its prognostications, or if you reject them or are heavily skeptical of them, as, as I am, they do bring up these hard questions that in a way are still, are still with us. Okay, so let's talk about those four basic ages of the evolution or development of astrology that I mentioned before. So starting with ancient astrology, the main root, the earliest root that we can find of astrological ideas is ancient Mesopotamia, especially in the Babylonian age. But it seems that the main centers of astrological lore and practices, as far as we can trace them, was not in Babylon itself, but was more in the lower valleys of Mesopotamia, closer to the Persian Gulf, basically in the area that was called Sumer, but that in the Babylonian age was called Chaldea. And so there's this ongoing connection between the word Chaldean and astrology. It seems that ziggurats, on one level, were the observatories of the royal regimes of Mesopotamia. So those massive stepped pyramids, some of which still survive in Iraq, those had observatories on top, and the kings and rulers of the cities of Chaldea were expected to be expert observers of the heavens and to have a sort of special insight and special connection to the sky. And most particularly, it seems, the one of the gods, at least, that was closely connected to rulership and authority in Mesopotamia was Ishtar, a very powerful goddess of love who was linked to the planet Venus. So the movements of Venus were taken to have especially great uh, political significance. And as this astrological knowledge and lore spread beyond Chaldea, it tended to be referred to as Chaldean. And the expert practitioners of astrology were called, in the singular, a magus or plural magi, so if you see this term come up, Chaldean, Magi, or just Chaldeans, it tends to mean 
astrologers, astrological wise men. And it seems that a great deal of this Chaldean wisdom was compiled and collected into a book written on cuneiform tablets called Enuma Anu Enlil. And this collection was compiled and completed by no later than 1100 BC. So still really in the early Iron Age, although much of the content goes back earlier to the Bronze Age. And it's been found in far-flung copies all around the Middle East, all around what had been really the late Bronze Age world. It's mostly composed of short aphorisms, short statements about what heavenly events signify or portend about events on Earth. And just one example of one of these aphorisms is, quote, when the fiery light of Venus illuminates the breast of Scorpio, then rain and floods will ravage the land. And there are also many other short statements like this that deal with the times of birth and death of kings, which, of course, these regimes were highly concerned with. And not long after the completion of Enuma Anu Enlil, we can see that this knowledge spread out to other civilizations, particularly Egypt. Uh, Star charts of various sorts have been found in Egyptian tombs from around 1000 BC. There are also, you can see in, in other nearby civilizations, references to the powers of the heavenly bodies, which somehow act as ministers, or you could say rule, on behalf of the gods. And there are examples like this in the Hebrew Bible, written over the next several centuries. For example, in Psalm 136, there's the commonly repeated line in this common psalm of prayer, uh, to him that made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night. It's also caught up, astrology has always been caught up with, as I said, royalty and the rise and fall of rulers. And you see that also in the Hebrew Bible, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, which prophesies that a star will appear in the east, heralding the birth of a new king of the Jews. And it seems that at this point in the Iron Age, the roots of natal astronomy began, or excuse me, natal astrology, the notion that tracking the heavenly bodies allow you to predict the life course and the fortunes and the nature of a person born at a particular moment and place. And the, uh, the earliest known surviving horoscope or birth star chart comes from Iraq, right? So that area that was ancient Mesopotamia, <clears throat> just south of present-day Baghdad, and was cast for a child that was born there in 410 BC. By that time, Mesopotamia had come under the rule of the Persian Empire. It had been conquered first by the Persian Emperor Cyrus and became part of this much wider and more integrated Persian Empire that covered a tremendous stretch of territory all the way from the Caspian Sea to Egypt and the Mediterranean, which attempted but failed to conquer most of Greece. And it seems that probably this new innovation, this form of astrology, both mundane and natal, started to, to spread and to 
interact or intercombine with other beliefs about the heavens from different parts of the ancient Near East. So this spread and hybridization, you could say, of ancient astrology, we don't really know what would have happened if it had simply continued under Persian rule. But it happens that the Persian Empire was dramatically conquered by Alexander the Great, this Macedonian ruler coming from the West. And Alexander the Great took over this vast empire, made Greek the main shared language, and then also extended it even further east into India, as far as the Indus River. And so... Although Alexander's conquests did not last, they paved the way for what we call the Hellenistic era, when various different interconnected civilizations now shared ideas and practices and people, with Greek serving as the language of exchange. And it seems that it was in this Hellenistic age that something much more like the astrology that we know today took shape. And probably the first and most important new idea that was picked up and woven into the astrology of the Hellenistic world was the notion of tracking the planets. So the planets for a long time had been identified with different gods, and it seems that this was a widespread notion among several different societies, and particularly that Mercury, the fastest moving planet, represented a god of travel, of information, of trade, Venus, a love deity, Mars, a a god of war, Jupiter, a god of rulership and power, and Saturn, a god of time, the cycles of time, the harvest, and so forth. And these, of course, could be set alongside the two largest heavenly bodies from our point of view, which are the sun and moon, which represent all sorts of things, you know, fertility, uh, male and female, uh, wealth. So the astrology of the Hellenistic age picked up this idea of tracking the precise movements of the planets and interpreting what they mean or what effects they will have on Earth, depending on where they're situated and what each of them represents. And different societies, it seems, were probably already in this habit. We don't know the details that may have been done already in Egypt or in India that people would observe these planets that they associated with the gods and try to assign significance to where they moved in the sky. And of course, planet means originally wanderer. And these bodies were seen as especially significant because they didn't simply move in a regular repeating circle around the sky, but rather they moved in erratic shifting paths as against the dome of stars. And so in this way, the great importance of the planets is they they introduce this element of complexity and variation from night to night and even moment to moment that simply doesn't exist most of the time. Well, it doesn't exist at all with the stars unless there's an event like a supernova. So in a way, you know, astrology you could see as as really a misnomer because although people at the time called these wandering stars, Jupiter, Mercury, and so forth were wandering stars, we don't regard them today as stars. So, you know, just one of the ways the, (laughs) the whole concept is outmoded. But 
different societies would observe the movements of these planets and try to, uh, to interpret them. And in the Hellenistic age, these different practices were merged together in a very complicated, multi-layered way because not everyone observed and described the movement of the stars in the same way with the same frame of reference. There were several different ways of doing it. One is to observe, obviously enough, the position of a planet with regard to the horizon, just where you see the edge of the sky from your point of view in a certain moment in a certain place. Another way is to observe it in relation to the ecliptic, which is the pathway that the sun appears to trace across the sky. And if you observe the movements of the planets, all of them seem more or less to cluster close to that same arc, which we call the ecliptic, because, you know, as we know now, they're all revolving around the sun. And so they appear at similar angles from our vantage point. A third way to describe the position of a planet is in relation to the celestial equator, which is simply the equator of the Earth projected out onto the celestial dome. So when one speaks of the movements of a planet, there are at least three different ways of describing it. And so you'll hear different phrases like, Mercury is in such and such sign, which positions it with regard to the ecliptic, or it's in such and such house. Uh, These different phrases refer to different ways of measuring the movements of these planets. And so there are many different ways you can then draw significance and draw complicated relationships between where is Jupiter, what is its trajectory, where is Venus, what is its, its trajectory, how do they relate to each other. And when it comes to the ecliptic, as I mentioned, this line across the sky where the sun appears to move, it was divided, it seems, probably all the way back in the Babylonian age. It began to be divided into 12 sections, Uh, which were assigned signs or symbols. Now, sometimes you'll hear, oh, well, these signs like Cancer the Crab or Aries the Ram or Taurus the Bull are based on constellations, but that's a bit of a misunderstanding. Really, there there is no constellation that looks much like a crab or a bull. Uh, Rather, people may have picked out sets of stars retroactively and related them, but rather these signs of the zodiac, as we now call it, were developed in ancient Mesopotamia and also probably India, and they're associated really with the seasons, right? So spring, you might slaughter a lamb, it's a food source in the spring, and so hence you have Aries the ram in the spring. Libra, corresponds to the autumn equinox, and hence its symbol is a pair of balanced scales reflecting the the even balance between night and day, light and dark, and so on. And so really, uh, the the constellations you kind of can take or leave, and again, the actual stars, properly speaking, on the heavenly dome are really secondary in astrological prognostication Hellenistic astrologers, including those who belong to the Neoplatonic school of thought that I already mentioned, also posited the idea of astral influences. So this is a way of sort of accounting for these purported connections or links between 
the celestial bodies and events in the world. If you suppose that each body, like Mars or the moon, exerts its own sort of push and pull uh, in not necessarily a physical way, but maybe more in a, uh, in a metaphysical or, or you could even say magical way because of the symbolic connections or correspondences between the heavens and the earth. The apparent similarity, you could say, between sun and gold and the moon and silver. And likewise, they applied the same idea that there were materials or body parts or living organisms in the world that were somehow symbolically linked to bodies in the sky. And in that way, it fit neatly into the, the doctrine of correspondences, which can be summed up in the case of astrology, was traditionally sun, summed up with the slogan, as above, so below that the, the macrocosm or the wider cosmos reflects, literally reflects, the microcosm or the earth. Uh, or, or, or you could say really the reverse, right? Events on earth are sort of shaped and guided by the larger macrocosm. And some also gave, you could say, a kind of quasi-physical explanation for why it was that human beings in particular were affected by the stars and why people born under different signs with different birth charts behaved differently. And that was the theory of the elements, which said that uh, fire is one of the distinct irreducible elements of the universe. And in some way, there was a sort of divine fire in human beings, which they called pneuma in Greek. And they postulated that the heavenly bodies are also made of this same substance, pneuma, and hence there's a sort of connection of a power linking uh, the heavens with human beings. And all of these ideas of, of correspondences, the microcosm and macrocosm, the notion of pneuma as a fundamental element, all of this could then justify the birth charts and the horoscopes of natal astrology. How is it that you can predict the character, the behavior, and the destiny of a person based on their birth? So all of this, as I've said before, could raise all sorts of metaphysical issues. Uh, Neoplatonic philosophers had their explanations for how all of this worked and how, and the implications. And Neoplatonists tended to have a very positive view of astrology because they believed it could empower people to plan and make decisions with the forces, the astral influences of the world in mind. How do you harness the good influence of the moon, the good influence of Jupiter to take the right actions at the right moments? Well, others viewed it very differently. And the Stoic school, which first arose in Greece but spread and became very popular in Rome, the Stoics also embraced astrology, but in a very different way. The, in their view, it fit into a deterministic and fatalistic understanding of the world. So a Stoic ideally is supposed to resign his or her desires and ambitions and basically accept uh, the, the workings of fate with equanimity. And so in the Stoics' view, everything in the universe is governed by unchanging fixed laws. And hence, you must uh, accept the sort of inexorable workings of fate. And many Stoics specifically discouraged the idea 
of avoiding their fate. Uh, for example, Seneca, who was unfortunately drafted to ask, act as an advisor and tutor to the emperor Nero, this sort of crazy, paranoid emperor who killed many of his, what he believed were his rivals, Seneca famously said, quote, you cannot kill your successor. It's impossible to kill whoever it is who's going to succeed you. You know, Seneca was part of this school of thought that was friendly to astrology on the grounds that it could help you to recognize that fate is inescapable, the future is inescapable. So again, there are very different ways of applying astrology, even among people who approved of it. So as I said, astrology, like Stoicism, it flourished in the ancient Near East, in the Hellenistic world, and that includes also in Greece. It was increasingly popular from the Classical Age into the Hellenistic Age, and it was embraced by the Romans, particularly upper-class Romans, who massively imported fashionable Greek high culture in the 2nd and 1st centuries BC. So along with Neoplatonism and Stoicism, astrology came over to Rome and spread particularly among the upper class. It was a discipline that involved all kinds of specialist terminology, including in Greek. In order to practice it, you needed all kinds of geometry and mathematics. And so it was really an upper class art, but it also gradually trickled down and came to be little by little more familiar to the Roman masses too. But the Romans also really embraced the practice of court astrologers who acted sometimes as the most important advisors to Roman generals or governors planning when to go on a military campaign, when to engage a battle. And the Roman emperors from basically Augustus onward had to have astrological advisors at the imperial court. In particular, Tiberius was himself an astrologer and would sometimes make his own forecasts. This makes a lot of sense because Tiberius was a particularly paranoid emperor who spent a lot of his time shut away on the sort of island fortress of Capri. And Tiberius gave a tremendous amount of power both to his chief of security, Sejanus, who is still famous to us because of Ben Jonson's play and I, Claudius, but equally he gave enormous power, even power over life and death, to his astrologer, Thrasyllus. So Tiberius in this way was an extreme case, but he did set the precedent of astrologers having tremendous prestige and power at the Roman imperial court. And later, devotees of astrology in the Roman world pulled together sort of guidebooks to try to reproduce correct astrological knowledge, what they considered to be a kind of astrological canon. And the most important was Julius Firmicus Maternus, who lived in the 4th century AD, so later in the Roman age. And he wrote an extensive handbook, which has been called Ancient Astrology, Theory and Practice. He wrote this apparently during the reign of the Emperor Constantine, when Christianity was rising to become the main religion of the empire. Now, it happens that this same author, Julius Firmicus Maternus, was also a Christian apologist. So he embraced the faith and wrote 
tracts attacking polytheism, attacking magic and sorcery, and all of these belief systems that he saw as sort of Eastern and challenging the true doctrines of Christianity. So it's been unclear for centuries how did this happen? Was uh, Firmicus Maternus a Christian at the time when he wrote his astrological book? Did he write one first and the other later? Did he reject his astrology? It's highly unclear, but it certainly seems possible, at least, that he was a committed Christian and he saw astrology as fitting comfortably with his Christian beliefs in a way that he didn't see sorcery or divination. And this can sound like a very fine distinction, but it's one that's important to note here that makes astrology unique, really, is that although we might see it as sort of mystical or magical, positing all kinds of hidden invisible forces, in fact, it's different from what we commonly call magic or divination. So if you're going to do magic like, say, fortune-telling with a crystal ball or channeling spirits, then you have to be a specially spiritually predisposed person. You could say a kind of shamanic persona. You have to have access to some sort of mental states or senses that others do not. And you have to be able to perform some kind of theurgy, some sort of uh, supernatural working uh, or, or channeling of power in order to gain knowledge or perform actions. Well, astrologers have always, back to Roman era and even before, astrologers have always insisted that that is not true of astrology. All you need is reliable observations and you need to be trained in interpretation, which is largely mathematical. So in this way, you could say astrology ought to be able to come up in principle. It should be able to come up with consistent results based on good enough observation and based on correct training of how to interpret two different astrologers in two different places in the world in principle should be able to observe the same horoscope and come up with the same prognostications about that person just for example. And so in this way, although we might reject the metaphysics underlying astrology, nonetheless, in this sense, it is more like what we would call a modern science than it is like magic, like necromancy or love magic, say, for instance. And astrologers have for centuries been able to gain much greater prestige and much greater acceptance in social circles like the church, for instance, that might be hostile to what they view as magic. So that's just a distinction that seems to have probably emerged already between astrology and other occult arts by the 4th century. So in the West, if we speak of the West as basically the Latin-speaking zone of the Roman Empire in Europe, North Africa, Astrology clearly was part of and was woven into early Christianity from the Roman age in those early centuries of the church. And we can see astrology reflected in interesting ways in the New Testament, just as it's clearly referred to at points in the Hebrew Bible. It's also in the New Testament. If we look at the life of Christ as told in the Gospels, the life of Christ as told in the Gospels 
is framed by astrological events at the beginning and the end. His birth is heralded, of course, by the Star of Bethlehem, which leads the three magi to his place of birth. And his death upon the cross on the hill of Golgotha is marked by a solar eclipse in which the sun goes dark for a period of hours. So if we look at the Star of Bethlehem, people for centuries have tried to identify what that celestial phenomenon might have been. And certainly there are many plausible candidates of what these three men might have seen that led them to believe that a king was being born. And as I said before, astrology was always associated with the rise and fall and births and deaths of rulers. So some have identified it with a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, in which possibly the light of those two planets somehow combined together and interacted. And as I mentioned, the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, or the the aligning of the cycles of Jupiter and Saturn, happens every in a cycle of 960 years and has often been thought of as sort of marking out ages of history. So it would make sense that that might be what people identified as the Star of Bethlehem. Others have said there are comets that were observed and recorded by Chinese astrologers in the year 5 BC. So that seems to be, you know, close enough to the right time frame for when Christ might have been born. But regardless of what the Star of Bethlehem may or may not have been, it clearly was seen as a marking a revolution or change of epochs, the ending of an old age and the beginning of a new one, which of course is exactly what the New Testament is all about, the creation of a new age defined by a new covenant with God. Now, it's also important to notice that if we look at the story of the Magi, and the the scholar Benson Bobrick specifically points this out, in the story of the Magi, it seems that these three men, whoever they are, are the only ones who see the Star of Bethlehem. (laughs) There are the shepherds who receive a message from an angel, but outside of that, the only ones who see the star in a consistent way enough to be able to follow it, to observe Christ, are these three wise men. Herod, for instance, seems to have no idea where it is and doesn't notice anything and is in kind of a panic about the possible location or identity of this new king. So for that reason, it makes the most sense to suppose that whatever the Star of Bethlehem was, it was probably an arcane astrological event that only experts in the art of astrology could see and understand as significant. And of course, this makes sense because the Greek word magoi, which refers to these three men in the book of Matthew, comes from, of course, the Chaldean Magi, and it means astrologers. And for many centuries, there have been mistranslations of this word by translators who were very uncomfortable with the astrological implications of the Gospel of Matthew and who called them three kings, which is not what they are, or three wise men, which you could say is a kind of very oblique gesture to the fact that they were learned men in some sort of art. But in modern day Bibles, you will see it sometimes translated correctly, or at least admitted to in a footnote, that in fact, they were astrologers. And if we 
look at this theme, this notion that the birth of Christ corresponded to an astrological revolution and change in eras. It can also be linked then to the precession of the sun. So the fact is, the axis of the Earth's rotation is not constant. It moves over time. It itself has a cycle. And so that means that the position of the stars and the signs of the zodiac in the sky at the different times of year changes slightly over time. So if one goes back to more than 2,000 years ago, let's say, you know, back to the Hellenistic age, for instance, the sun on the spring equinox appeared to rise in the sign of Aries, or the, the ram, which made sense because, as I said, rams and lambs are associated with spring. But around the time of Christ, more or less, depending on exactly how you divide up the sky, the rising of the spring equinox sun moved into the sign of Pisces. And clearly, people in the early church in these early centuries who were awash in astrology and who understood astrology as part of the framework of the story of Christ, they initially tended to represent Christ as a lamb. And of course, the Gospels, again, connect Christ to the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. But later, as the faith spread in the Roman Empire, they instead began to use fishing metaphors and to speak of Christ as a fisher of souls and to represent Christ symbolically with a fish figure, which is still a practice among some Christians today. So in this way, you can see Christ as having sort of different faces, which he takes on symbolically based on how you position his story astrologically. So clearly there's this, there's this close connection to astrology in how people explained the basic mysteries of Christianity early on in those early Roman centuries. But increasingly, after the time of Constantine in the 4th, 5th centuries, astrology was more and more attacked by the church. And one instance of this is St. Augustine, the great defining theologian of the early Middle Ages, the Bishop of Hippo. Augustine, it seems, saw astrology as a kind of threat or possible rival to Christian beliefs, much like other cults, mystery cults, pagan cults that persisted in the Roman world. And he argued that it more or less contradicted the core beliefs of monotheism, the idea that there is one God who determines all events in the universe, and it contradicted his doctrine of predestination, the idea that uh, it is God's grace that predetermines whether a person is saved or damned. And astrological material, such as the reference to the Magi in the book of Matthew, were more and more suppressed. As I said, the phrase was mistranslated by those who didn't want to see astrology referred to in the Bible. And astrology, as I said before, involved very complicated, high-level mathematical analysis, geometric analysis, 
which took a lot of training and required a lot of written material in order to pass on effectively. And so astrology was one of the main arts or fields of knowledge that was lost during the so-called Dark Age. Although it survived maybe in somewhat truncated form in the Byzantine Empire, in the Eastern Roman world, in the West it was one of those fields of endeavor that was totally lost most, like most fields of knowledge that were lost at this time, it was because the churchmen who were putting so much time and labor into copying and preserving manuscripts simply did not prioritize it, and it was dropped out of the sort of fund of knowledge of the Western world. So this was more or less the situation in the 7th century, where astrology, it seems, did hang on in some ways in the Greek-speaking East and also in probably in Mesopotamia and Persia. This was the state of affairs when Islam appeared in the world and an Islamic empire very quickly took hold and conquered more or less all that territory that had been Persian and Alexandrian and that had seen this flourishing of astrology in the Hellenistic age. So with the rise of Islam and particularly with the rise of the second dynasty of caliphs, the Abbasid dynasty, you see a further flourishing and a new age of astrology, which we can call Arabian or Islamic Learned men of Islam were interested in all kinds of wisdom that was held in the Greek world, and they were insistent on acquiring, circulating, translating the great works of medicine and geography, and among them, astrology. And they took whatever astrological knowledge they could collect from Greece, from the Near East, and from Persia, and they tried to collect it and build upon it at their great center of learning, the House of Wisdom at Baghdad. So Baghdad became the new great capital of astrology. A lot of this wisdom was brought from Persia and other places by Jewish scholars, such as Masha'Allah ibn Atari, who was a Persian Jew who taught astrology in Baghdad, and even a special school devoted specifically to astrology, was set up as kind of an adjunct to the House of Wisdom, mainly by Jewish astrologers. It then, of course, was further embellished and passed on by Arabic-speaking Muslim scholars, and a lot of the terms that we still use in astrology and that also have passed over into astronomy, like zenith and azimuth for the point at the top of the sky and point directly below it, these come from Arabic. And the Arabs also made a very important addition to astrology, which further, you could say, multiplied the complexity of how to make prognostications and how to make advice and plans based on astrology. And that is the theory of conjunctions. So I I mentioned conjunction before when talking about the Magi, just as this sense that at some point two heavenly bodies come together and they're seen side by side or one obscuring the other. Well, for many centuries, people saw those sorts of conjunctions as significant. But these Arab scholars went further in saying that the different influences exerted by the different planets, like Mars and Venus, can combine and interact in all kinds of different ways. And those 
intercombinations and interactions of the planets in different parts of the sky can be beneficial or harmful depending on how they relate to one another. And particularly, there's a sort of basic notion that relationships and angles that are based on thirds are good, whereas those based on powers of two are bad. So what that means is if, let's say, Mars and Venus are both in the sky and they're separated, they're four signs apart, then the space between them forms an arc that's sort of one-third of the entire sky. And that's considered to be a good, healthful, beneficial position. So if you are in a place on Earth where you see those planets at that angle, their powers are going to combine in a positive way. You know, it's a kind of like Captain Planet sort of effect. Whereas if they are square, meaning they're 90 degrees apart in the sky, or if they're opposite, 180 degrees on the opposite ends of the sky, then their powers combine in a harmful way. And there are all kinds of further divisions and subdivisions that you can make of how the different planets and bodies relate to one another, the sun, the moon. All of these beneficial or harmful effects can be further interpreted and given more precise meanings based on exactly what houses or signs they're in. So this theory of conjunctions added a further layer and could be significant for all the applications of astrology, including mundane and natal astrology. But they were particularly useful, you could say, for elections, for this notion that you should be able to pick out the exact best moment to take an action, like assume an office or engage an enemy on the battlefield, and so forth. And in this way, people got down to the point of subdividing minutes down to seconds when the planets were aligned in a favorable or unfavorable way. So all of this sophisticated new development of astrology was going on overwhelmingly in the Islamic world, centered again in Iraq, in the same country that had been ancient Mesopotamia. And it was pretty much unknown. It was entirely foreign and unknown in the West. But this changed very suddenly in a sort of great flood of new knowledge that came out of the Islamic world and into the Christian West, mainly because of the reconquest of large parts of Spain, which gave Western scholars new access to documents and manuscripts which they could study and translate and even the opportunity to study with Jewish and Islamic scholars in Spain. So there was this flood then of astrological interest and knowledge into the West at basically the same time as the great Aristotelian revolution when knowledge of Aristotle was brought back into the West in basically in the 12th century. And an early incident showing this new infiltration of astrology into the West and the sort of conflict and uncertainty that it caused is in the year 1108 when Gerald, the Archbishop of York, was on his way from York to London to attend a council and he died suddenly and his body was found in an orchard alongside the road. And his body was brought back to York to be interred But with him was found a copy of the Book of Astrology by Firmicus Maternus, 
that great late Roman scholar that I talked about before. And it seems that the archbishop had been carrying this book around with him on his person, even when he died. And hence, the monks at the chapter at York refused to give him a Christian burial and sort of buried him out in a field. But later, his successor, who took up the office of archbishop, changed and reversed this decision and had his remains brought in to the York Minster. And why did Gerald have this book? Well, you know, anybody could be interested in astrology for any number of reasons. But in particular, he had previously served as a Lord Chancellor for two kings of England. And so he was a statesman and an administrator. And like anyone, he might have wanted to use astrology in order to try to forecast and manage affairs of state. So this shows how astrology was quickly making inroads, but to some degree was underground and still controversial. Eventually, it was integrated into the teaching of astronomy as part of the quadrivium, or sort of four higher disciplines, of a university education. So this new growing class of literate, university-educated people did have some exposure to astrology, and more and more it was taken up by special practitioners once again, as it had been back in the Roman era. And there was a kind of efflorescence then of astrology in the West, in the High and Late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. More or less from the 1200s through the 1500s, there was what you could call an astrological golden age, when again, every royal court, most papal courts, and even the courts of high nobles like dukes, had to have astrological advisors who often were very powerful. And some of them you can see, like John Dee at the court of Elizabeth of England, sort of revived the ancient figure of the Magus, the sort of all-purpose adept and wise man who places astrology at the top as the sort of highest, most important art for understanding world events. And in this astrological golden age from the 1200s to the 1500s, routinely public events, ceremonies, coronations, weddings were timed according to astrological advice. Designs of streets, of fortresses, of churches were made according to astrological alignments to sort of channel the positive influences of the planets. Predictions were regularly made about successions to the throne, about victories and defeats in war based on astrology. And you can see amazing incidents of the sort of rising power of astrology, which, as I said, was still controversial and suspect, especially in the eyes of the church, but which gained greater and greater acceptance year by year. And for instance, in the year 1346, after the great battle at Crecy, one of the crucial uh, engagements of the Hundred Years' War, he had his chaplain, Thomas Bradwardine, give an address, sort of lauding the king and the army for this great victory. And he used as his text a line from scripture saying, give thanks to God who always leads us in triumph. And he argued in his, in his address, quote, What astrologer could predict this or foresee such a thing? There is one prediction which will never be proved false. Whatever God wishes to happen or to be done, that is done. Whomsoever God wishes to be victorious, he is victorious. 
And whomsoever God wishes to reign, he will reign. Although therefore the heavens and the earth and all things under the heavens should be against you, if God is for you, what can harm you? And although the heavens and the earth and all things under heaven should be for you, if God is against you, what can help you? So you see how the chaplain, Thomas Bradwardine, is sort of putting forth this warning, do not put stock in astrology. And he surely only said so because astrology was gaining power and prestige and was gaining, you could say, the other ear of the king. And Bradwardine saw it as a possible rival for how people would view and explain events in the world. And he wants to sort of call people to resignation to the will of God as against this effort to control events through astrology. Similarly, just a few years later, bubonic plague was ravaging Europe. The Black Death was killing millions all across the continent, and naturally people were alarmed and confused. So in 1348, just two years after suffering defeat at Crecy, the King of France asked the medical faculty of the University of Paris, this supremely prestigious university, to account for the Black Death. And in reply, they wrote that the conjunction of Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter in Aquarius, as exacerbated by a lunar eclipse, had led to the plague. And they said, quote, For when the sun is directly opposite the moon, then the power of each of them reaches the earth in a straight line, and the mingling of influences of sun and moon with that of the superior planets creates a single celestial force. End quote. To make things worse, Mars was in Leo, a fire sign, together with the dragon's head in square to Jupiter, which corrupted the whole atmosphere and made it ripe for pestilence. So you see here how the leaders and teachers of other disciplines like medicine were completely now immersed in astrology, including that complex theory of conjunctions, whereby uh, heavenly bodies at right angles create negative forces, and they were using that to account for the great events. Just two years after that, in the year 1350, the great early Renaissance poet Petrarch was invited to give a speech at the investiture of the new Duke of Milan. And he was furious that his speech was ruined because he was interrupted by a churchman who said, it's time now to do the investiture. You have to stop your speech because such and such stars and planets are aligned in such a way that this very moment, this minute, is the necessary time. And Petrarch is an example of a person who was very resentful of astrology because of this personal experience and probably because of his feeling of personal resentment and rivalry with competing wise men who derived their authority from astrology. Now, it would be a mistake, though, to think that Renaissance humanism, as represented by Petrarch, was always necessarily opposed to astrology. And in fact, they came together in a very powerful way, particularly in the person of Massilio Ficino, who was a sort of early Renaissance man in Florence in the 1400s. And Ficino was known as a great expert in mathematics and music, and he was a Neoplatonist. So he had translated 
and circulated some of those ancient manuscripts of the Neoplatonic school that I mentioned before, which was friendly to astrology because they saw it as a way of manipulating and aligning oneself with the astral influences in order to achieve power and success. So they had a sort of empowering interpretation of astrology as opposed to the Stoics who were fatalistic. And Ficino became a great promoter of astrology. He wove astrology into the revival of ancient Greek and Roman learning and Neoplatonic doctrines, the doctrines of sympathies and correspondences, the notion of as above, so below, became very much part of the Renaissance, and you can see it as a guiding principle of some of the great Renaissance artists like Botticelli, whose paintings often are really astrological talismans, you could say, trying to manipulate these astral influences. As I said, astrology also made its way very much into the field of medicine. Medical applications were common. There were astrological physicians who tried to administer medicines, to to create medicines at the correct propitious moment in order for them to be effective, to apply them to the parts of the body, depending on how and when the different parts of the body were affected by their corresponding planets. This became really defining of Renaissance medicine, and you can see words like our word influenza, which come from an astrological root. Influenza is simply the Italian word for influence, and it was believed that this illness, the epidemics of this illness, much like the epidemic of the Black Death, were understood as being caused by astral influences. Right Before germ theory, how did you account for the fact that so many people in a given town or city got sick at once? You could explain it by vapors and miasma or by astrology. It had tremendous power and influence in navigation. Columbus consulted with astrologers in order to time his voyage to the west. Magellan consulted with astrologers not only for timing, but also direction uh, to try to determine the location of the Spice Islands and the most prosperous foreign lands. And Elizabeth I was a great believer in astrology, and I mentioned her sort of advisor, who for a time was probably the next most powerful person in the kingdom after Elizabeth and maybe Lord Burley. And she consulted with John Dee to determine the location of prospective English colonies and to sort of map out a putative English empire abroad. So really, European navigation, expansion, and colonialism were all spurred and guided in deep ways by astrology. Now, along the way, in this astrological golden age, there were also skeptics, some who rejected it, as spurious, and there were also many who didn't reject it, but who just wanted to purify and reform it, to sort of pare down astrological claims just to their strongest bases and abolish only the the excesses. And there was question and ambiguity about exactly how much power the stars have. If they do exert this influence, is it overcomable? Is it reversible? And a great example of this was Francis Bacon, who, you know, we see today as a forerunner of modern science, one of the first great empiricist philosophers. And he took this sort of measured view of astrology. And he said, quote, as for astrology, I would rather have it purified than altogether rejected. 
The last rule, which has always been held by the wiser astrologers, is that there is no fatal necessity in the stars, but that they rather incline than compel. We will add one more thing, wherein I shall certainly seem to take part with astrology if it were reformed, that we are certain the celestial bodies have other influences besides light and heat. Let this astrology be used with greater confidence in prediction, but more cautiously in election, and in both cases with due moderation. So Bacon is trying to take this moderate position, and as you can see, like so many people, he's trying to parse out and weigh what the exact metaphysical implications are of astrology. Does this mean that our fate is sealed? Does it mean it can be changed? And how do you reconcile the different possible meanings of elections astrology versus natal versus mundane? So still at this point in the early 1600s, at Bacon's time, it was still mostly an elite art, but it was starting to spread through the popular press. Literacy was growing and the press was becoming more prolific, especially in the West. And this is part of why astrology reached new audiences in ways that it hadn't really in the Islamic world or India. And it seems that by the early 1600s, there were so-called avizi or kind of warnings and information being printed on broadsheets with astrological predictions and cautions for the coming week or the coming month and being hawked just in common marketplaces around Rome, especially in kind of modest working class neighborhoods like Trastevere. So this was a growing presence by the 1620s, 1630s. It also ran its way very deeply into literature, including popular literature. You know, Shakespeare was a popular writer for the theater and the press in London. And you see these basic ideas like in the preface of Romeo and Juliet, the star-crossed lovers. And in As You Like It, the famous speech on the seven ages of man, that was based on the seven planets and the idea that human beings, like the world and like regimes, go through cycles and stages corresponding to the powers of the different planets. But even as it became more popular, there was still a continuing connection to royalty and to politics and the rise and fall of regimes. And many rulers often tried to restrict and control knowledge of astrology and to sort of stop it from leaking out either altogether or in particularly dangerous ways. And for instance, Elizabeth I, who I said was a great astrological believer, in 1581, she banned the possession of her birth chart and she banned any predictions or prognostications about her death. She was very worried about disloyalty. There were assassination attempts. And she made even the casting of her birth chart a capital crime, a sort of treason unto itself. Later, her successor, Charles I, or the successor of her successor, Charles I, was another great believer in astrology. He consulted closely with William Lilly, who played a similar kind of role, you could say, to John Dee, was enormously powerful in government. And William Lilly reportedly correctly predicted that Charles would be overthrown and would die by beheading. Now, you can imagine many rulers you know, were not as forgiving as Charles I, and often turned into enemies of astrology if they got these kinds of predictions that they didn't like. But Charles apparently took this prognostication in stride. 
And later, he, he and his successors also consulted with Elias Ashmole, who was an engineer, an alchemist, and astrologer, who became not only a court astrologer, but increasingly also a kind of popular astrologer. He made connections, it seems, through Freemasonry in London, and he gained a sort of wide clientele. And in a way, you can see him as kind of a transitional figure who was a highly respected scholar and alchemist and courtier. He was an arch-royalist, supported the royal side in the Civil War. But he also wanted to popularize this knowledge. He published books on alchemy. He founded the Ashmolean Museum at Oxford. And he became, you could say, a kind of early forerunner of a celebrity astrologer. Now, nonetheless, you could, you could imagine that perhaps astrology would have gained this enormous popular spread if it had continued on unabated through the 1600s. But in fact, a lot of the ideas of these philosophers like William Lilly and Elias Ashmole were falling out of favor among the elite already by the 1660s. There had been, for one thing, the Copernican Revolution, which posited a complex three-dimensional space in which the heavenly bodies, <clears throat> excuse me, in which the heavenly bodies revolve around the sun, not the earth. And this kind of called into question, you could say, the significance of the cycles and epicycles and movements of the planets, if in fact everything was moving around the sun. So that may be introduced an element of doubt. It sort of undermined the idea of the dome of the heavens being a kind of canvas or divine bulletin board upon which messages are posted. Secondly, there was the growing experimental philosophy fostered in the Royal Society in England and the Académie des Sciences in France, which tended to suggest that uh, theories, metaphysical theories about forces and influences need to be tested in a controlled environment, which astrologers did not do. And then finally, beginning around 1700, there was a Newtonian revolution in physics. And as I've said before, this didn't all happen overnight, but there was a gradual growth and acceptance and influence of the Newtonian philosophy which applied to heavenly bodies the same as on Earth. It posited that all bodies exert a single universal gravitation on one another and that the rules of motion are the same on the Earth and in the cosmos. There is nothing special and separate and distinct about the cosmos. So this notion of correspondences and of macrocosm and microcosm was undermined. So gradually, beginning by about 1670 and accelerating after 1700, astrology lost prestige. It was pushed out of the universities in the late 1600s, and this was really an unintentional effect stemming from the theories of philosophers who, by and large, agreed with astrology. You know, Copernicus, Galileo, even Isaac Newton, they all subscribed to astrology. And yet, in a very unintentional and unforeseen way, their theories, once they gained hold, they undermined the foundations of astrology, and they undermined its perceived authority, especially among the educated elites. So the role of the court astrologer diminished. The last British monarch, if we just look at Britain, 
the last British monarch to be cons- counseled by astrologers was Queen Anne. And it happens that her court astrologer correctly predicted the exact date of her death. But nonetheless, the Hanovers who succeeded her did not turn to the art of astrology. And more and more over the 18th century, it was uh, mocked. Samuel Johnson, in his dictionary, basically just summarily dismissed astrology. So although Johnson still believed in occult arts like witchcraft, nonetheless, he defined astrology as, quote, the practice of foretelling things by the knowledge of the stars, an art now generally exploded as irrational and false. And the Encyclopedia Britannica similarly uh, dismissed it as uh, a spurious, what we would say now is a, a pseudoscience. So in the 1700s, astrology had to shift and astrologers had to play different roles, which gave rise to what I'll call modern astrology, something distinct from the Islamic age of astrology. So since the 1700s, there have continued to be some astrologers who do still make a living, and a lot of them have a clientele among the sort of middle class and working class, people who are not rulers or court ministers or generals. An early example was Ebenezer Sibley, who was a physician and Freemason from Bristol, England, who successfully presaged the French Revolution, believed that a massive revolution would happen in 1789 based on the revolutions of the heavenly bodies. It was very common for astrologers to advise the launching of commercial ships and voyages. I This is something I saw in my own research studying the Freemasons in Rhode Island, the Grand Master Christopher Champlin, as late as the early 1800s consulted with astrologers in order to determine the exact most propitious moments to launch his ships day or night. And that was not unusual, even at that late date. And there was a new sort of spread and audience for astrology because of the popular press. So a lot of these authoritative books of astrology by people like William Lilly or by medieval Italian and Spanish astrologers were widely printed and available. It became possible for an ordinary person, a non-professional, to basically become an adept at home. They may not have had the precise, sophisticated knowledge of someone like Elias Ashmole, but they could study and use this knowledge for themselves. Popular circulated books like Farmer's Almanacs often included astrological information. So a Farmer's Almanac printed in the 17-1800s, it would give times to plant, plants in the spring, times to harvest in the fall, and a lot of it was based on the propitious alignment of the planets. And there was the continuing belief in medical astrology of connections between the planets and the signs of the zodiac with the parts of the body in order to guide sort of self-treatment, self-treatment of injuries or ailments. And there seems to be increasingly a connection between this sort of popular astrology and Freemasonry. And often the people who reproduced and spread this astrological knowledge were themselves Masons, such as, for instance, Benjamin Franklin, who continued, although he probably didn't believe in it, he continued to include astrological lore in his Poor Richard's Almanac. 
So in the 1800s, at the beginning of the industrial era, astrology was sometimes actively persecuted or attacked as a kind of fraud. So you now have a a political and legal and scholarly elite strongly aligned against astrology. But the astrologers who were targeted, you know, they were more likely to be people who were making a lot of money, who were prominent, but they could escape punishment because of their patronage, because of the sometimes rich and powerful people who patronized them. It was explicitly banned in Great Britain and the United States in the 1830s, and British law categorized astrologers as rogues and vagabonds who were subject to vagrancy laws. But nonetheless, later in the 19th century, the art started to regain some new prestige in a different way, sort of piggybacking on the growth of spiritualism, occultism, the emergence of theosophy, uh, and the, the school of theosophy, which believes in an astral plane, sort of parallel to the visible world. And it was integrated into new theories, theories of science, or you might say pseudoscience, like Carl Jung's psychology of archetypes and the shadow self. And so in these ways, astrology was taking on a kind of new cast and a new role. And the previous distinction or bright line that astrologers had drawn between their science and kind of the occult arts of spiritual divination that line broke down, and there was this kind of new, bizarre intellectual eclecticism combining science, pseudoscience, art, spiritualism, and a sort of, you could say, a kind of chewed-over consumption of Asian wisdom, a new interest in Vedanta and other spiritual teachings as a response or an alternative to Orthodox Christianity. So this sort of, you know, you could say moony, mystical understanding of astrology takes on uh, a new life, especially among the kind of late Victorian middle and upper class. There's a new growth of astrological consultants and advisors, and some of them rise to great fame and notoriety, like the American Evangeline Adams, who derives a lot of prestige from the status and wealth of people that she advised. She was known as kind of the astrologer of Wall Street in the early 1900s. She claimed to be able to forecast the stock market. And so this loop of mutual reinforcement between the field of astrology and the sort of upper class really comes back in a new form in the late 1800s and the 1900s. And in the 20th century, it also finally entered into new mass media beyond just books and astrological publications. It starts to be recombined and hybridized with the, the popular press and particularly mundane astrology, which you could say had sort of fallen into abeyance. The use of astrology to predict great world events gains a new appeal in mass media in the 1900s. And it seems that in particular, 1930 was a critical year. So in 1930, Evangeline Adams in New York starts a regular radio show in which she makes astrological prognostications for kind of mass consumption. So commenting again on public and world events, not just for, you know, a royal court, but for a mass popular audience. 
and also newspapers take on astrology for the first time and start to mass produce astrological predictions. So in the year 1930, uh, the prince, George, who would later be known as King George VI, had his second daughter was born, Margaret. So he already had a daughter, Elizabeth, whom we now know still today as Queen Elizabeth. But his second daughter, Margaret, was born August 21st, 1930. And the Sunday Express, this kind of, you know, typical middle-brow popular market newspaper in England, had to come up with something interesting to say on yet another royal birth. And so the editor had the idea of asking a prominent astrologer to cast her birth chart and make prognostications about her life. And the first choice refused to do it, so it went to an assistant, a young man named R.H. Naylor, who made, you know, cast the birth chart and made sort of broad, vague uh, predictions, like she'll have an eventful life. But this proved to be very popular. It piqued many people's interest. And so the paper then asked Naylor to make a further set of prognostications about the coming year. One of those prognostications was that a British plane would crash and lives would be lost in October, which was, uh, you know, his prediction was pretty close to what happened. So this furthered the sort of buzz and interest. And so finally, he was invited to give a regular recurring column called Your Stars. And this column led to the shift in the meaning of horoscope. So traditionally, a horoscope meant, you know, viewing the time, viewing the hour. And it was a way, it meant the the birth chart of all the heavenly bodies and what they might mean at the moment of a specific person's birth. Well, in your stars, the information was arranged differently. It was for a mass audience. And so instead, it simply made a few basic, broad prognostications for anybody, for all readers, based on their sign, simply on their astrological sign, whether they were born during the month of of Capricorn or the month of Gemini and so on. And this sort of reworked then how people organized and presented astrological information instead of these extremely mathematically complex, painstaking predictions based on every detail of of the sky. Instead, it came to be, people became accustomed to understanding astrology as weekly or monthly predictions based on your sign. And instead of your whole birth chart, what would have previously been called your entire detailed horoscope, the crucial piece of information that people carried around in order to receive and consume astrological prognostications was simply their sign of the zodiac. So this way of talking and thinking about astrology, again, brought it to a sort of easily accessible mass medium and mass audience. It continued to be woven into intellectual life and art in different ways, popular writers and also avant-garde writers. Uh, Margaret Mitchell uh, reportedly named the character Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind on the basis of Her personality, which derived from the position of Mars in her birth chart, the red planet, 
William Butler Yeats reportedly was a great devotee of astrology, always took predictions every day, wove that into his modernist poetry. And military leaders in the Second World War consulted with astrological advisors and sometimes even made battle plans on the basis of astrology. Uh, Charles de Gaulle made contact and engaged with such an advisor during the war and then took on astrological advisors to continue through his political career and his presidency. And in this way, you could see echoed the rulers of the Middle Ages in the ancient world who had astrological advisors. So there was this continuing stream of astrology, which had become more popular and had reached a mass audience, but also still had some footholds in the elite and the political realm. But all of this fed into a great explosion, another explosion of astrology, especially in the 1970s, in the sort of new age, when people in the young, literate middle classes wanted kind of alternative, again, spiritual, metaphysical ideas. And this kind of new age astrology from the 70s to recent times is sometimes more impressionistic. It often sees signs as psychological symbols representing psychic energies. And in some ways, you could say uh, these, this transformation of modern astrology was complete and that it became a lot more like divination, a sort of uh, searching for the truth through altered spiritual states and no longer a kind of mathematically rigorous discipline with pretensions to being a precise science, right? So... And this New Age astrology continued the infiltration into the elite and into new elite groups, especially Hollywood. It's not surprising then that the Reagans, who came out of Hollywood, brought astrologers into the White House and often timed and scheduled meetings with world leaders and so forth with astrological advice. Again, very reminiscent of an ancient or medieval royal court. And according to surveys as of 2009, so in recent times, 26% of Americans say that they believe in astrology, you know, whatever that means to them. It's comparable in terms of level of belief. It's comparable to belief in UFOs, although, you know, that might be outdated you know, <laughs> with the new reports and information coming out. Belief in UFOs maybe is getting more validated. But there has also been a recent new rise in astrological practice and astrological interests, it seems, within the past 10 or 12 years. And this could be, again, because of new media, easy consumption through the internet, social media, Twitter can share sort of snippets of astrological lore. But the internet also allows people to go much deeper and to sort of explore and read more and learn more than you do just from newspaper horoscopes. It's often seen as part of spirituality, uh, the new spirituality. It has a similar, people often have a similar relationship to astrology as to meditation. Uh, its devotees are not necessarily doctrinaire. They might have a kind of open-ended, flexible way of using astrology. It can fit into this pattern that I've mentioned before of people who identify as nuns, not affiliating to any religion, but being spiritual but not religious. It's part of the pattern of being open to Asian and different traditions from around the world. And particularly astrology has a great enduring popularity in South Asia, 
And it's so again, it can find an audience among people who are open to South Asian traditions and practices. But there are also, it's important to note, there are also important social psychological reasons for the new popularity. Uh, It's not just trendy. Uh, And there was a study in 1982 on the use of astrology, which found that consultation with astrologers tends to result from stress. People turn to astrology most when they're feeling stress, especially in their relationships, uncertainty in their relationships and their social roles and social identities. And millennials, the the generation now, you know, around my age, are the most stressed generation. They're people subject to great uncertainty, uh, instability in terms of work life, uh, low rates of marriage, frequent movement. And so it's not surprising that young millennials show great interest in astrology, and it can be seen really as an index of social disruption, of atomization, and of confusion about social relationships and belongings. And I think an interesting reflection of this, of how sort of anxiety uh, and a feeling of lack of control in your life, lack of stability, can be seen in an essay by... Sonia Saraya, who is a friend of mine and a friend of the podcast. Uh, Sonia grew up Indian-American in Florida, raised by a Hindu mother. And last year, she published a column in Vanity Fair, sort of meditating, you could say, on why she continued to be devoted to astrology. And she writes, quote, For much of my family, momentous decisions like choosing a wedding date or naming a child would not go forward without first consulting an astrologer. I also remember seeing an impersonal printout bound in a red and yellow paper folder from an astrologer in India. My mother had sent away for my natal chart. My mother allowed me to consult it as a teenager, but then locked it away, cautioning that too much future-gazing is unhealthy. So there's this tradition of astrology being passed down to her, even as her family has a kind of ambivalence that maybe you can use it too much. There can be risks to it. So there's this sort of ambivalent relationship. But nonetheless, Sonia carries on this interest in astrology as an adult, despite living a very different life and lifestyle in New York. At one point, she says that she attributes her feelings of depression and unease to the heavenly bodies, specifically to a retrograde Mars. So Mars, this planet that was prominent and important in her birth chart, being in a period where it's reversing course and seems to move backwards in its path across the sky. And in this way, turning to astrology allows her to allay some of these negative feelings by giving them a meaning and a sort of cosmic cause. And so she goes on to say, quote, there is a lot to fear in this life, climate change, the GOP turning into one's mother, but it is crippling to check one's every moment against the stars to live in so much fear of the universe. I am terrified of the world, but I cannot deny how much it has given me, too. And if the movement of planets is telling a story, then I want to be a part of it. Once in a while, I feel like I am just one tiny piece of the universe engaged in a cosmic dance without end. The cosmos is unfolding to unheard music, and the planets are keeping time. 
So there's so much that you can take from this little passage. For one thing, the feeling of lack of control over the world, of anxiety, and the relief from the notion that the universe is is unfolding in a regular, predictable way, and you are just part of that movement. You could see it in a way as a kind of stoic sentiment on the one hand, of sort of just accepting the course of time. But that's not necessarily how it's always understood. You can also take away that the new popularity of astrology, it grows from anxiety and uncertainty of modern life and the desire for patterns and meaning. And clearly the modern interpretations look for influences, not just portents. They look for how these bodies like Mars are actually affecting you, your actions, your moods, your fortunes. But it's flexible and open and allows for agency, allows for decision-making, a way of navigating the world and feeling some degree of control, uh, a way of addressing the uncertainty and the vicissitudes of life, of professional life, of love life, of rising and falling fortunes, dealing with world events. And so rather than teaching resignation, it can give many people a feeling of control and meaning. And it can give a way of addressing the great confusion, the common feeling of being overwhelmed by so many choices, right? Many people are under great stress and material strain, especially right now. But at the same time, they have a seemingly infinite array of possible courses of action. You know, just look on Amazon and see how many different things you could potentially buy. And astrology, I think, can help to impose order and meaning to sort of sort through these confusing multiplicities of choices. And in this way, I think you could say astrology addresses the postmodern condition, you know, what Lyotard called the postmodern condition, the sort of state of unending multiple meanings, the sort of phantasmagoric experience of the world, fragmentation. So I think all of this discussion in this history up to the present can help to show us what astrology maybe has to offer and why people might turn to it. But of course, there are many potential problems and objections. You know, certainly many people very understandably will simply say the whole thing is a fraud, it's baseless. Even through the ages, when astrology was widely accepted among social elites, there still were many critics and opponents. And most often those were people who just disliked the predictions that they received. You know, there's this interesting scene in, in King Lear where Edmund, this, you know, ambitious uh, upstart, hears astrological predictions and he, he doesn't like the fatalism of it and insists, I am not controlled by fate, I will make my own destiny. Uh, but there are also many philosophically grounded objections. As I said, there are those who have said it undermines the principle of monotheism, that God is all-powerful and determines events. On the other hand, it can also be seen to undermine the doctrine of free will and the idea that human beings are morally responsible for their actions. How can you be blameworthy or creditworthy for your actions if everything is determined by the stars? And Augustine made argu- arguments like this, as I said before. He rejected it on those bases. And also, how can it be that our births control our destinies when Sometimes our destinies are caught up 
together in great big events, like an army loses a battle and is slaughtered. Does that mean every single man in that army had the same birth chart because they all died in the same place and time in the same way? So in his view, history seemed to disprove astrology, uh, that there's, you simply couldn't pin down a correlation between birth and fate when there are events on earth that actually change our fates. The early medieval church, as I said, rejected and tried to suppress astrology. They associated it with sorcery, with efforts to overcome God's dominion, and institutionally they saw it as astrologers as a challenge to the authority of the church and the clergy. And as I said, Aquinas was one who tried to reconcile these problems to bring astrology together with the doctrine of free will by distinguishing the body and the soul. But there are many, there are many problems with the, the bases and the ramifications uh, of astrology. So lastly, I want to talk about, well, how can we evaluate astrology by our own standards today? How should we view it? Uh, is there any truth to it? Uh, if, even if there is little or no truth to it, is it still valid as a field of study? And a common question or concern that comes up in modern day language is, is astrology scientific? And different people will make different arguments uh, on this basis. It happens that Sonia Soraya in her essay just says up front, it's not scientific. And therefore, the question is, why am I still drawn to it? Well, let's say we address that question. It seems, in the way we use the term scientific today, it seems as if basically it should be scientific if the conclusions and assertions are testable. So how could astrological assertions be tested for validity in the way that seems to be a basis of science. Well, astrology has always been called a science. We should say that up front. It's always been referred to as a science, but science, through most of history, that word has simply meant a very cultivated skill or practice. And you could call all kinds of things, even, even magical practices, could be called science. I've seen that, again, in my own work and research, where people continue to refer to ritual, like Masonic rituals, as science right on up into the 19th century. You know, it's only in pretty recent times that the meaning of, sci of science has been adjusted and refined to refer just to particular kinds of skills and practices that work towards authoritative knowledge in a systematic way. So we can say, okay, astrology was always considered a science in the broader, looser sense. Do we have to reject it from our modern understanding of science because it's magical or divinatory? Well, not exactly. As I said, it's not like mind reading. Astrologers tend to distinguish their art from magic and divination. They argue that there is no need for special magical powers, only study and skill, including in mathematics. It does not involve spirit communication. And the readings of astrologers, in theory, ought to be the same from any qualified practitioner. There should be a rigor and a consistency to them. And in this way, you could say astrology was always a large step closer to science 
than any other occult art was. And so in that light, it shouldn't be so surprising that people like Copernicus and Galileo and Tycho all subscribed to astrology, practiced it on an amateur level. And Johannes Kepler, the great cosmologist who built sort of the bridge, you could say, from Galileo to Newton, Kepler successfully predicted the severe winter of 1595-6 to using astrology and the Turkish invasion of Austria that followed shortly after. Now, one could of course say, very reasonably, these are all just lucky guesses, right? It, it, it may be that, that these fellows like Galileo actually used rigorous reasoning in order to come up with theories of the movements of the heavenly bodies, but when it comes to astrology, if they sometimes got things right, it was just a lucky accident. So you could say, is it is astrology still just a sort of made-up pseudoscience, something just put forth with no evidence? And Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler were simply being too credulous by accepting the validity of this whole field that is totally baseless. Well, from their point of view, it certainly didn't seem that way. Uh, As far as they understood, astrology was based on careful observation and accumulation of information over time, just the same as other disciplines like botany or medicine or geography. And perhaps some of the conclusions or assumptions of astrology were wrong, but all fields have errors and mistakes that sometimes have to be edited out. You know, in medicine, the whole humoral theory, the theory of bleeding, all of that was considered central doctrine in the field of medicine until pretty recently, you know, really until the 19th century. Does that mean medicine is pseudoscience? So it's not necessarily so easy to just say, oh, well, astrology was wrong, therefore it's not scientific. Now you could still say, well, okay, maybe they made mistakes, but it wasn't just mistakes. It was the fact that they believed things without evidence. There was no evidence to support the claims of astrologers. But that too is not true. Certainly not from the point of view of people who were evaluating astrology before 1700, at least. Rather, there are reams and reams of evidence to support astrology. There are untold thousands of correct predictions. If you look through the chronicles, if you look through the histories of all sorts of societies, they are packed with correct reading of omens and correct predictions. You know, the comet in 1066 that was understood to presage the invasion and overthrow of the King of England. William Lilly correctly predicting the time and manner of Charles I's death. We could go on and on. You know, in smaller incidents, the astrologer Cardano going and curing the Archbishop of St. Andrews in Scotland in 1552, curing his illness, but predicting that in 15 years' time he would die of hanging. It goes on and on. So what there is is there are piles upon piles of anecdotal evidence to confirm the efficacy of astrology. There have been figures like John Burton, who was an anatomist in the 1700s, who set out to debunk astrology, but ended up changing his mind and believing in it. And if you go around and 
talk to ordinary people every day, you'll hear all sorts of similar stories on a personal level of, you know, a minister who disbelieved in astrology, but consulted with an astrologer about where to find his lost wallet and successfully found it. So the question that this raises is, again, are these just good guesses? And what do we do with all the possible counter evidence? How about all the wrong predictions, prognostications that didn't come true? Are they recorded? How do we count them or weigh them? Are we just looking at a bias where people tend to remember and repeat correct predictions but forget how often they're incorrect? And when we do find an incorrect prediction, what do we do with them? How do we weight them against the correct ones? Well, many astrologers would simply say, well, if you came to me with a, a, a prognostication that was disproven, then it must have resulted from a misreading. It must be that I ignored some factor. There was some other force in some other part of the sky that I failed to factor in. And so hence, I need to update that information to correct that wrong prognostication. But if that's true, then the question is, is how do we test? How do we test whether or not it was simply a bad reading of the sky or if the entire underlying philosophy was wrong? Well, a systematic test like this to weigh the, the validity of astrological readings is rarely ever attempted. Maybe because it would simply be useless. Uh, the astrologer would simply say, well, if I got it wrong, it was because of a mistake. It's not because astrology is wrong. You know, it's sort of like, you know, astrology cannot fail. It can only be failed. Maybe it's just not done because it's just considered a disreputable topic altogether, not even worth bothering with. But nonetheless, there have been some studies that in some way bear upon certain ideas of astrology. They may not rigorously test out all of these fine details, but there has been some weighing and examination of the broad idea that your place and time of birth somehow affect your destiny. And recently, there have been medical studies showing a connection a remarkably strong connection between many medical disorders and the time of one's birth, as measured at least by one's by the month of birth. So all kinds of conditions like glaucoma, epilepsy, Alzheimer's, seem to relate closely to being born in certain seasons of the year. And some of them, not all, but a subset of them, such as MS and schizophrenia, have a close association with birth in a certain time of year, but it is reversed according to the hemisphere, whether one is born in the northern or southern hemisphere. So the implications of this are very interesting. It seems that if it comes to certain things like MS or schizophrenia, there must be some effect of sunlight or the season, something about the season, which of course is opposite depending on whether you're in the northern or southern hemisphere. But for others, like glaucoma, epilepsy, Alzheimer's, it's not about the season because <laughs> it's about the month regardless of whether you're born in the northern or southern hemisphere. So there's now a good deal of data showing that there is some connection here, but the mystery is what could be the mechanism. It doesn't seem it can just be sunlight exposure, 
Could it be something about the moon, the movements of the moon? Could it have to do with vitamins or germs that are somehow prevalent more in certain months than other months? And apparently there is a neuroscientist who's a postdoc at Brown University, Chris Charlelio, who said recently, quote, we know that there is this weird connection between seasonal birth and certain disorders, but we don't know why. So it's unclear. It's been hypothesized that circadian rhythm somehow plays a role, and that's not only sunlight, but moonlight is a factor in the circadian rhythms in your body starting right from birth. Uh, And modern science, in short, might reject the metaphysics of astrology that posits astral influences, but metaphysics was never the point, right? This is something important to recognize about astrology, is that there are many different possible metaphysical mechanisms that you could posit for how these correlations exist between human activity and the heavens, But that's not the point. It's the predictive value of the prognostications that has always been the point and the aim of astrology, that people can argue about the metaphysics. It's the prognostication that matters. So then we have to say, well, if at least in some limited respects, there may be some validity to the idea that the exact time of your birth somehow governs your destiny, and we don't have a clear mechanism for how that could happen, then we have to ask, okay, is there maybe some truth in astrology? Now, this raises further questions. Well, if that's true, then do we have to say that's, therefore, those facts are not astrology? We're not doing astrology if we say, well, if you were born in November, you're likely to have respiratory problems. Well, That's sort of cheating in the same way that we cheat with magic, where we say, well, we're defining astrology as false, and therefore, if we find some aspect or idea in it that is borne out and is valid, we redefine it as not astrology. Uh, You know, it's the no true Scotsman problem, right? You just take things out of the category if you don't want them to be there. So I think we'd have to say, all right, it's possible in principle. Maybe there is some truth in some claims of astrology, but of course, astrology as practiced by specialists goes way, way beyond just making predictions about health based on your astrological sign of the zodiac or your month of birth. They make much further and much more detailed and precise claims, both about your exact character and personality, as well as about world events, politics, and so on. So we're still left with this question, how do we test those ideas? How do we test this idea that the movements of the planets and the heavenly bodies cause distinct moments in time with massively different significance for people and the world, including, as I said, in natal astrology, where your destiny is somehow determined from birth? Well, in this case, as St. Augustine pointed out way back in the 4th century, Augustine pointed out there's already a natural experiment going on with regard to natal astrology and the idea that precise moments in time, precise positions of the planets determine your destiny. And that natural experiment is twins. Twins who are born in the same place at the same time. And yet very often, 
live completely different lives and have totally different destinies. You know, and you can point to Jacob and Esau or Romulus and Remus, or you could think back to the twins that I spoke of at the beginning of my lecture about the Spanish flu, where one died shortly after birth, the other lived for 100 years. How do you account for that? Well, astrologers' customary response to that argument about twins is to say, well, even twins are still born at least a few minutes apart. And those few minutes might be enough for one or another heavenly body to cross a line, move into a different house or a different sign, relate to each other in some different way, uh, and just the rotation of the earth and the movement of the bodies in relation to the horizon. That may be enough to apparently completely throw off a person's entire character and life course by as much as a hundred years lifespan. Well, if that's true, how can we trust any astrological predictions if such tiny fine differences make a 100% difference, a total night and day difference, you might say? then how can you ever possibly trust that even the finest calculations can reach that level and provide any sort of certainty? And, you know, there's an interesting incident, again, in Sonia Soraya's essay, where she says, I learned as an adult that the, the, the time that my mother had used to cast my birth chart was seven minutes off from my birth certificate, and hence that throws everything into confusion. And if it's true that such tiny differences can completely change your interpretation of a chart, well, what do you do then with that information? Do you, do you use it to then further refine and, and do even deeper hair splitting of the exact significance? And do you ever reach a point where the art or the science is good enough to make any sort of confident prediction? Or are you, are you on a kind of infinite regress where you update your model based on that tiny bit of information, you come up with something different. And then if that prediction is also wrong, then you have to adjust it further and adjust it further and adjust it further. And as you do so, are you coming up with better knowledge, better prognostications, as one hopes in a science? Or are you just in an infinite regress of just constantly coming up with more explanations or more excuses of why things look the way they do, without ever arriving at any actual good, dependable predictions. So in this way, you could say the extreme complexity of the predictions makes them untestable. There must always be some factor you're not getting right that, that, can, that needs to be added into the mix to change your conclusions. And hence, you could say as the complexity of the discipline grows, which it has through the millennia, as I've described, as the complexity grows, it becomes just as confusing and ambiguous as real life. As the star chart becomes more and more mind-bogglingly detailed, eventually interpreting it is going to be just as uncertain as predicting a person's life. <laughs> is it really actually giving you anything? So it loses its predictive power and it loses its ability to be tested. It becomes so complicated, you can't effectively control, make a controlled experiment to test it. So this is at least, I would say, a valid concern, right? That we're in a sort of infinite regress 
position. It just gets more and more complex, and ultimately there's no way you can ever be so skilled to factor in every possible little factor affecting the outcome. So that's a valid concern, but it may cross some people's minds. One can say the same thing about all kinds of sciences. One could say the same thing, for one thing, about all human and social sciences. How can we possibly account for all the factors that play into a psychological or sociological experiment? All the factors of social context, of individual personality, of individual biochemistry, of the light in the room, the sound in the room, the amount of oxygen in the room. How can you expect to create such a controlled experiment that you can come up with a valid prediction as to how people will behave. So I would say in the same way, as the discipline grows and becomes more and more refined, it becomes more and more untestable. And hence, all we can really do as far as human behavior is just make intuitive guesses based on incidents, anecdotes, observations. And if social scientists, in my opinion often make good predictions, maybe they're doing it by the same kind of informed guesswork as an astrologer. And maybe the illusion of scientificness is the same. Now, what do we do with this? Do we banish all social sciences and say none of them count as science? Well, many social scientists might rush in and say, hold on, you can say a lot of the same things about so-called hard sciences. If we look at physics, is string theory testable? How are we coming up with it? How do we verify it's true? Does it have any predictive power? And what we're finding, as I've discussed in other lectures too, is that if we, if we look carefully at the value of peer-reviewed published scientific literature, a great deal of it seems to have actually no predictive value. There's a replication crisis where people are testing out and seeing whether even landmark studies and and experiments in major scientific fields can be replicated. And the results are not encouraging. So, okay, (laughs) where are we left here? The fact is there are many people, of course, who will still accept the social sciences as at least having the right form and process of science while rejecting astrology. Why is that? Why, what is different about astrology? Well, the fact is that what we consider science today fits into a certain paradigm, a paradigm of how knowledge works and how the world works as a kind of mechanistic, you could say a kind of grand machine operating under the standard model. And even if certain sciences seem to be untestable or to have little predictive value, they fit into a paradigm. So what is it that undid astrology? If it's not lack of evidence, as I said before, it's not lack of evidence and it's not excessive complexity, what undid astrology and sort of banished it from the sphere of high intellectual pursuits? It was a paradigm shift. It's the fact that, as I said, in the 1700s, Newtonian physics was taking hold, and people had to simply apply Occam's razor. How do we account for all the evidence we have, making as few assumptions as possible, and keeping our model as simple as possible? 
So there was a paradigm shift over the course of the 1700s, which led to a new view of the world, a mechanistic view of the world, which could account for a great deal of phenomena based on very few rules. And older doctrines like the Neoplatonic doctrines of sympathies and correspondences, they could fly and sort of pass muster in the period of great confusion, the epistemic free-for-all of the 15 and 1600s. But they couldn't survive in the new paradigm they had to be discarded because they simply introduced too many complications while accounting for too little of the observations. And philosophically, theologically, there was a rise in deism, which seemed to fit together well with Newtonian physics, with this sort of simplified metaphysics. Newton's laws of motion seemed to be able to account for the behaviors of the heavenly bodies without reference to these sort of sympathies. And hence, by extension, also, there was no more room for omens, for astral influences. The metaphysical complications they brought in were simply too great, and so the new theories just wrote them out. And all of this led, of course, to the creation of a much pared-down astronomy, with only a few forces, uniform forces, acting consistently among bodies, the most important of them gravity. There was no more place for emanations and so on. And astrology got hived off from astronomy and sort of pushed out of respectable academic science. The universe was just simpler without it. So it's important to note here, astrology and the sort of notions that were sometimes used to explain astrology were rejected not because they were disproven experimentally and not because of a lack of evidence, but because they just carried too much metaphysical baggage to survive in the new paradigm. And what happened to astrology is remarkably similar to what happened with witchcraft. You know, different people like Samuel Johnson might still put some stock in witchcraft while rejecting astrology. That happened. But By and large, they followed a very similar trajectory, where there was a rise in skepticism among the elites in the 1600s, and then a rapid loss of prestige in the 1700s. But as I've noted before, I think in my lecture about witchcraft, when people rejected the theory of witchcraft, they had to do so while denying the masses of evidence. And there were judges and ministers who very frankly in the early 1700s said, I know there's tremendous, there are so many reports and so many records of witches and their actions. It seems incontrovertible, but it just can't be true. It must be some kind of delusion. It it can't be true because it just no longer makes sense in how we understand the world. So if we ask, okay, should we as, you know, informed worldly people of today, should we countenance astrology? Well, you know, in my view, probably not. (laughs) It just has way too much baggage without good support. You know, personally, I would go with Occam's razor and say it's much simpler just to suppose that this is all an illusion of predictive power that isn't really there. There are no astral connections. There are no correspondences. There's just gravity and light. And, you know, if there are seasonal factors affecting whether you get an illness like schizophrenia, it must be some mechanism like diet or 
it, it just it can't be the stars. It just doesn't seem like it could be true. But by the same token, I would also say we have to approach the social sciences the same way. Maybe sometimes they hit on some truth, but does that really mean that the whole paradigm, the whole system of claims built up in these social science fields are valid? I think we should approach them with the same sort of skepticism. And particularly, I am by far not the first person to point out a remarkable parallel between astrology and the field of economics, which in a way is kind of the most prestigious and most lucrative and most powerful social science. Others have pointed out the similarities, the vague abstract theories based on highly complex mathematical models, which do not seem to have any predictive power. People have shown economists who advise hedge funds, they do not find any better results than simple index funds in the stock market. It can have enormous power and prestige. Uh, The top, most prestigious universities churn out economics graduates who go on to careers in government and high finance. They advise rulers and political leaders. They claim to be able to prognosticate events and give advice on how to time actions of state. You know, in the U.S., the president always has a so-called council of economic advisors. It very much resembles these circles of court astrologers who kept throwing out predictions and prognostications without having any way to systematically test them as to whether they had any actual value. And recently there was an article on economics that pointed out the similarity to Evangeline Adams, that sort of astrologer of Wall Street, who in the early 1900s was arrested for fraud three times, And in her second trial in 1914, she had been arrested by an undercover cop. She was brought to court. She could have sort of pled out or gotten a minor minor slap on the wrist, but she insisted on a trial. And in this trial, she greatly impressed the judge by casting an astrological birth chart and reading it for the person's personality. And the judge said that her process was remarkably mathematical, and precise, and this meant that it couldn't actually just be fraudulent. The judge named Fresky specifically said that Adams, quote, went through an absolutely mechanical mathematical process to get at her conclusions, basing her horoscope on the well-known and fixed science of astronomy. She violated no law. The plain object of the statute is to protect the fool and the credulously weak from the knavery of those who claim wisdom and who resort to trickery and every device known to cunning as a means to gain in some form. I am satisfied that the element of fraud, which we usually find accompanying the fortune teller's case, is absent here. So there's a lot you can take from this judge's comment in this 1914 trial. On the one hand, if you are a person who rejects astrology as quackery, you can see that the irony, the tremendous irony of the judge saying, oh, no, no, this law is intended to protect fools from being taken advantage of, and I'm not a fool. I can see that she's genuine. But on the other hand, you do have to notice that the judge is drawing a distinction between fortune-telling and astrology. 
And in his view, the astrological discipline is valid because there is a determinism to it. There is a mechanical process that leads from the input to the output. It is not just uh, divination or mind reading. So that is a distinction that matters to many people. And in this way, you could say, even if you do reject the underlying assumptions of astrology, that doesn't mean that any given astrologer is therefore a fraud. This astrologer may be genuinely following a process that they truly believe gives them valid conclusions in a way that, at least in this judge's view, is not true of someone like a fortune teller. But lastly, a third point that we need to take and be cognizant of from this passage from this judge is that mathematical complexity can cloud our judgment. It can provide people with a sort of cloak of intellectual validity, when in fact it doesn't matter if the underlying assumptions simply aren't right, and all you're doing is a kind of shell game. And the same issue applies both to astrology and to all kinds of other sciences, as we can see in the replication crisis. How do you deal with selective reporting of results? How do you weigh how often is this result that you're seeing actually significant and how often is it just a single selected out result that seemed to provide a correct prediction when all kinds of other results are failed and how do we weigh this in the long run it's extremely difficult so what do we take from all of this well what i take from all of this is that it's important to be very wary of all claims of all claims of truth or knowledge or predictive power and we have to be resistant, not only to obvious charlatans, but we have to be careful and skeptical also towards prestigious people who speak in prestigious language and may have prestigious connections or credentials. All of those social markers do not necessarily mean that what you're saying is not nonsense, is not just quackery, whether intentional and conscious or unintentional. And so if we apply this skepticism towards astrology, which I do myself, we also have to think carefully and skeptically about all fields of knowledge, even those that are considered prestigious and authoritative today. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll hear from me again soon, and please tell friends and neighbors if you liked it. <laughs>